Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 39, Neighbours and Provinces. Last time, we talked about the growing Christianization of the empire during the 6th century. In this episode, I want to conduct a very brisk walking tour of all the empire's provinces and its neighbours, just to make sure we all have the same information about geopolitical realities before the narrative moves forward. I'll also answer more of your questions and give you some extra tidbits from the Strategicon. We'll take this geographically as best we can, starting in the west and moving east. There is a map up on Facebook and at the historyofbyzantium.com showing the political distribution of states across the world in 600 AD. Furthest west is Spain, and so we begin there with the Visigoths, the descendants of Alaric and the men who sacked Rome. They are still in charge of most of the peninsula, with a dwindling portion of the east coast in the hands of Spanish Romans and Byzantine troops. We know very little about what happened in the Byzantine province during this time, but doubtless any tax revenue generated was put toward the common defence. It seems unlikely that any of Justinian's successors were able to send anything significant in the way of reinforcements or financial assistance. In a way, it's surprising that the empire's Spanish holdings remained as long as they did, surviving until 628. From a bird's-eye view historical perspective, the main result of the Byzantine presence seems to have been a kick up the backside for the Visigoths. Back in 500, I commented on how central authority in Spain was weak. The civil war and the Byzantine invasion which it invited seems to have alerted the Visigothic nobility of the dangerous position they were in. They needed to band together or face obliteration. The energetic King Leovigild provided the impetus to create a stronger, centralised Visigothic monarchy. He ruled roughly during the period of Justin II and Tiberius II and firmly established the primacy of the king through constant military campaigning. He also began to soften his people's attachment to the Arian version of Christianity. Leovigild realised that bringing Catholic Romans on board was the only way his countrymen were going to survive and his son and successor went a step further, outlawing Arianism in 589. The lessons of Frankish survival and Ostrogothic destruction had been absorbed, and the Visigoths would spend the 7th century integrating more fully with the country they had come to rule. 
Across the Pyrenees, in the realm of the Franks, the political situation had been secure well before 600 AD. The sons of Clovis all became kings upon his death in 511, each taking a part of the kingdom and then squabbling with one another over territory while also conquering new lands on the border. This competitive atmosphere contributed to the desire of King Theodobert to intervene during the conquest of Italy. As you'll recall, it was he who sent men to plunder Italy twice during Justinian's reconquest. That act of treachery, after Justinian paid him to mind his own business, remember, is a good segue into a question from a listener. Listener NL asks, What is Byzantium's relationship with the Franks? How did these kingdoms see the empire in 600? Was it still the old revered Roman Empire, the biggest kid on the block? Or had they deemed Byzantium to be pretty irrelevant to them at this time? Within the phrasing of that question is the simplest way to answer it. The Roman Empire, based in Constantinople, was indeed still seen as the biggest kid on the block and worthy of reverence. But the Franks also knew that imperial armies were unlikely to tread on their toes, and so the respect they paid was becoming increasingly a form of lip service. To flesh that answer out, though, let's all remember that the Roman Empire cast a very large shadow. For many people, there would have been no comprehension of a time before it. The literate could read tales of the Gauls under Vercingetorix, but there was no practical institutional memory of a time before Rome. Imagine if tomorrow, for some strange reason, the United States of America ceased to be a political entity. Would anyone living in America be able to organize life the following day without reference to the US of A? Of course not. And so it was always going to take a long time for the influence of the empire to disappear and be fully replaced by a Frankish consciousness. This is all evident in the sources, where you have bishops and aristocrats treating the various Frankish kings in the same ways that they would have an emperor. Writing petitions and letters of praise, debating religious disputes, and so on. Much of this writing was done in Latin, and Roman coins were still the currency in use across the realm of the Franks. The Franks were increasingly self-confident, though, particularly in military matters, but were very aware that the Roman Empire still existed. Nominally, the Franks still accepted that they ruled at the emperor's pleasure. In an exchange of letters between Maurice and Childebert, Maurice refers to him as the glorious king of the Franks, while Childebert writes to the glorious, pious, perpetual, renowned, triumphant, lord, ever Augustus, my father Maurice, imperator. So at least in formal matters, the Franks continue to address the Byzantines as their betters, and maintain the fiction that the emperor was their father, or in some way appointed them. In practice, though, the Franks were very aware of the distance that the empire was now at. Frankish embassies and occasionally royal refugees would head to Constantinople when they needed something, but Frankish kings increasingly began to realise that the Byzantines had no practical control over them. You may remember that Maurice sent cash to King Childebert in exchange for military action against the Lombards. When those campaigns failed, Childebert gave up, 
and ignored Imperial ambassadors who suggested he continue the fight. Slowly over time, the success of the Franks as a ruling people meant the culture of their lands changed and adapted around them. For the Franks themselves, the lure of Rome was easier to shrug off. Not only because of their successful military culture, but also because they conquered lands that had never been part of the empire. Their holdings now pushed deep into Germany, and so more and more people were becoming a part of their realm, who had no memory of being Roman at all. A sign of things to come came during the reign of Theodobert, who was the first of the barbarian kings in the West to mint gold coins with his name and face on. Across the Alps in Italy, the political situation was largely covered in the narrative, with the Lombards spread out across the north and some in the south, with poor communication lines between the two and the Byzantines left to the cities on the coasts. We can add a little more information on the Lombards at this stage thanks to the Strategicon. The author of the military manual goes into detail on how a Byzantine commander should approach battle with each of the Empire's enemies. It's hardly a great cultural survey, but it does offer us some insights. The Lombards are grouped in with the Franks and other light-haired peoples and are described as bold and undaunted in battle. In fact, they are said to consider any timidity a disgrace and prefer to fight hand-to-hand, having not really developed much in the way of archery for their armies. This is presumably because they didn't have a centralised state yet where such tactics and the arms factories to supply them could be developed. The suggested way to fight them is not to fight them. Avoid pitched battles, make use of ambushes and sneak attacks. If possible, use diplomacy or bribery to delay any fighting, which should cause the Lombards to run out of provisions and lose interest in battle. Of course, to bring any of this to bear, the Byzantines would need a full army in Italy, which seems unlikely to happen while fighting so many enemies closer to home. Speaking of which, we now move east to north of the Danube River and the border with Byzantium, where Focus's rebellion just took place. The whole area is now under the control of the Avars, while the further east you go, the more autonomy the Slavic peoples have. As neither people had their own chroniclers, we rely on Byzantine authors to give us more details, which means more from the Strategicon. He offers little insight into Avar culture, simply saying the steppe peoples are always ruled by a harsh king who uses strict punishments to keep his subjects in line. But as for fighting them, the author reminds us of the obvious, that pursuing them in battle is a bad idea, and that the Avars always keep a reserve force ready who could quickly turn the tide of battle with an unexpected counterattack. Byzantine commanders also had great difficulty in estimating the size of Avar armies because they wouldn't keep detachments together in a handy formation and the dust from thousands of hooves could obscure the full size of a force. In order to defeat the Avars, the author suggests you fight their horses. Most organised steppe armies had hundreds of spare horses with them so that their experienced men could switch when their ride became tired All those horses had to be fed, so the Strategicon says attack them in February or March when their horses are weakened by the hardship of winter, 
or manoeuvre them into areas with no grass. If you could get the Avars off their horses, then the superior training of Imperial soldiers would soon tell in close combat. As the Slavs were a relatively new enemy for the Empire, the author devotes a much longer passage to them to help instruct commanders on how to defeat them. This passage has been used to make several assumptions about the Slavs and their organisation before they began raiding the Empire. The Slavs were seen as a very hardy people, regularly bearing the heat of summer or the cold of winter, with very few provisions, and sometimes even clothes. They seemed very comfortable living and fighting amongst the forests and rivers of the region around the Danube. They would make very effective use of ambushes and raids, darting out of trees and crossing rivers swiftly. In fact, the author claims that some Slav soldiers were known to dive to the bottom of a river and then breathe through reeds to avoid being discovered. The Slavs were not well armed though, and their bows couldn't pierce imperial armour. They had very little in the way of organised government, as far as the Byzantines could tell, all of which made the Slavs relatively easy to defeat in a pitched battle, but very hard to cow as a people. The author recommends fighting them during the winter, when frozen rivers can be crossed, forests are bare of leaves, and provisions will be harder to come by. This was, of course, exactly what Maurice ordered his men to do when they rebelled against him. The author goes on, though, to point out that the Slavs are extremely populous, which is quite the understatement given the near century of annual raiding that you have heard about on this podcast. And, of course, Slav settlement is known all the way from the Baltic down to the Danube and from Germany across to Russia during this century. An extraordinary geographical spread for a people we know so little about. The Strategicon may offer us something of an explanation for this, as it claims that the Slavs took a very different view of prisoners than other nations did. They do not keep those who are in captivity among them in perpetual slavery. After a definitive period of time, they give them a choice, either to return to their own homes or to remain there as free men and friends. Although a very simplified piece of analysis, this does seem to point the way toward an explanation for how the Slavs had come to dominate such large areas which only a century before had been dominated by German speakers and various other tribes. It seems possible that with large groups of Germans migrating south into the Roman Empire during the 5th century, that over the next hundred years Slavic migrants came to dominate the region. With their apparently open attitude to social inclusion, their numbers could have expanded rapidly. Without written sources, we rely largely on archaeology to work out who the dominant people in any region were. So perhaps this explains the rapid spread of Slavic groups over such a large area. Because it doesn't mean that Slavic people were necessarily breeding at an amazing rate, simply that existing tribes adapted to Slavic culture when the new people moved in. So let's move into the empire once again for a quick reminder of the situation. 
I don't have a huge amount to add to the situation in the Balkans. The area was raided in every single decade of the 6th century, and as we heard last week, city life had changed completely in such a vulnerable region. Generally speaking, the closer you got to the capital, along the Thracian plain, the safer and more prosperous life became. Inside Constantinople, the population had shrunk significantly since its height just before the plague hit in 540. Modern estimates suggest the area might have housed half a million people then, but even that isn't certain. And once Yersinia moved on, the city would never again approach even half that size during the Byzantine era. It would comfortably remain the largest city in the empire, though. Out in Anatolia, we are met with a couple of reader questions. Listener Jay asked for a reminder of which regions grew what, and whether Anatolia was lusher in Byzantine days than it is now, while listener HD asked what the population size was, what ethnic groups lived there, and the various religions practiced. Both listeners, of course, are anticipating the growing importance of Anatolia in our story once the Muslim invasions take place. For a more detailed description of Anatolia, the land which is Turkey today, I will direct you back to episode 11. Nothing significant has changed about the landscape from how I described it then, which was essentially coastal plains along the north, south and west, mountains separating them from the central plateau, and then more mountains on the east coast with the Caucasus Mountains in the north and the Taurus Mountains in the south. The important thing to remember is that the majority of the population lived on the coastal plains, where a typical Mediterranean culture existed, with people growing cereal crops along with fruits, vines and olives. While on the central plateau, things were either extremely hot in summer or extremely cold in winter, and so the economy was largely pastoral, with sheep, cattle and horses grazing there. The question of whether the area was more fertile than now seems to jump ahead in our story. The area is destined to become the battleground between Byzantium and the Arabs, but in 600 AD the land was much as it had been for centuries as far as I'm aware. The coastal areas were known to grow decent crops in Roman times, but were certainly not thought of as anything particularly special. Estimating population size is, as you can imagine, a difficult business. The Byzantines just didn't have the infrastructure to maintain an accurate census. So historians make the best guesses they can, which might put Anatolia at somewhere around the 4 to 5 million mark out of a possible 12 to 14 million subjects in the east in 600 AD. So that number ignores Africa, Italy and Spain. In terms of the ethnic groups present and the religions practiced, well, as we saw last week, the population was largely Christian outside of the empire's Jews. Those Christians were largely orthodox in belief, except for the Armenians on the border. I will discuss the empire's ethnic groups in more detail in a couple of episodes' time. That brings us to the eastern provinces, where again the major events of the century took place in our narrative. But listener DC asks, in both your podcast and the history of Rome, it's mentioned how wealthy the east was. 
What was the source of this? Well, the largest source of wealth in the whole empire was still Egypt. It's hard for us to imagine a world where nearly all economic activity came from the production of food. But in the ancient world, that was the case. And producing food was vitally important, because without surplus supplies, it was impossible to support bureaucrats, soldiers, priests, and emperors. So the fact that every year, Egypt produced far more food than it needed, made it the most valuable piece of real estate in the known world. In the case of the Roman Empire, the food was used to sustain first Rome and then Constantinople as imperial cities. Without the free bread dole, neither city would have swollen to the great size that they did. One of the other pieces of great farmland in the empire was found in the east as well. This was in Syria and Palestine along an area of river valleys known popularly as the Fertile Crescent. The farmers of this area usually produced a healthy surplus, which could feed the cities in the desert areas nearby, which freed up the citizens of that region to access the other source of great wealth, trade with the east. All the goods which arrived from China, India and Persia, such as silk, spices and slaves, had to come from east to west. And so the merchants of Syria and Mesopotamia always made a good profit sending goods west, with the price marked up. So between the trade and the good farmland, the east had access to two sources of wealth that the west did not. The eastern trade routes and cities had also been established centuries before those in the west. This secure financial footing meant that the life of the eastern empire was able to continue on when Roman civilization in the west came under attack. However, listener DS asks, why, if the East was so rich, were emperors constantly scrambling for money? Are these territories not as wealthy as they once were? The answer to this one is all in the narrative. Back in the age of the Antonines, the German tribes were smaller and easier to deal with, and the Parthians were less well-organized too. By the time of Byzantium, the Danube border was teeming with tribes who had grown in size, strength, and knowledge of how to raid the empire. Meanwhile, the Sassanids had reorganized themselves to be a stronger power as their western neighbor. The Byzantines, therefore, had to maintain strong armies on both fronts just to survive, and that cost a lot of money. We saw that just before the plague, Justinian had enough cash to create several new armies and send them west. But once the plague hit, there were less people, less money, and suddenly far more land to protect. So no, the east was not less rich as far as I know, but there was economic depression after the plague. And remember that Yersinia didn't go away. For 200 years, it would reappear in various places across the known world, decimating cities and moving on. What about Africa, though? Listener DS asks. Didn't the former lands of Carthage once feed Rome? Shouldn't its addition to the empire have helped balance the books? It's a good question, and Roman Africa is about to play a big part in our story when the narrative resumes. 
Of course, Africa was only the granary of the empire until Egypt took its place. And even before Augustus defeated Cleopatra and Antony, Egypt had been selling grain to Rome. So clearly the African fields were not abundant enough to feed much more than Italy. And in the case of Africa, we do see the land becoming less productive than it once was. I did hint at this process way back in episode 8, when I said that historians observe the gap between the desert and sown land shrinking, both in Africa and in the Middle East. The desert nomads were increasingly able to dominate land that centuries earlier were filled with productive estates. Whether it was climactic changes or human cultivation which wore the land out, I will leave for more learned people to debate. But today, if you look at the ruins in Libya, you can see former Roman farming towns sitting way out in the desert. For example, there's a 60,000-seat amphitheatre at El Gem, surrounded by sand and dirt, rather than the vegetation necessary to support so many people in one place. While in Leptis Magna, a major Roman city, we find mosaics depicting fauna now found only in tropical Africa. So clearly Roman Africa did slowly decline in agricultural quality. In 600 AD, though, it was still a wealthy province, but it was only just coming back into the imperial system after a century of rule by the Vandals. And remember that much of its tax revenue was being spent on the soldiers, defending it from the Berber tribes. Over in the deserts of Syria and Palestine, the Arab tribes had of course spent the 6th century slowly gaining preeminence. In service of both Byzantine and Persian empires, many tribes had found the borderlands to be a profitable new home. The area was a place of highly varied religious practice by this point, with the pagan Lachmids, the Monophysite Ghassanids, the Christians of Aksum, the former Jewish kingdom in Yemen, along with many existing local cults throughout the Arabian Peninsula. You can see where I'm going with that one. Finally, though, we come to the Persians, who have featured heavily in our narrative throughout the 6th century. Listener R asks whether the Persians outnumber the Romans at this point, especially given the way the Persians had the better of most conflicts during the 6th century. Again, estimating populations is about guesswork. Very roughly, one could say that the Sasanids ruled over 8 to 10 million people post-plague. If you cut out the Balkans and only include Anatolia, the Levant and Egypt, then the Byzantine East was probably the same size. So during the age of the Antonines, if the Romans could use armies from east and west, they would outnumber their eastern enemy comfortably. But once the crisis of the 3rd century took place, the Romans were almost always facing enemies on multiple fronts, and so increasingly struggled to put together a force large enough to beat the Persians. The results of most battles between the sides depended on which empire could mobilize more men for any particular campaign. During the 6th century, the Sassanids prioritized attacks on Byzantium, while Justinian was looking west. As we saw, once Tiberius and Maurice shifted extra troops east, suddenly 
the Byzantines had the upper hand at every turn. I think the overall balance between the two empires was pretty even at this point. The author of the Strategicon adds a couple of useful insights on the Persian military. He notes that the Persians are the most formidable enemy of the empire because they are highly organized. He says they are the most competent enemy at laying siege to a city and the hardest to besiege. A few weaknesses are worth noting though. When the Roman army was on campaign, they would set up a fortified camp with defences and ditches and so on. And everyone within the camp would always pitch their tents in the same place. Therefore, you would always know your way around in the dark, no matter where you were on campaign. Apparently, the Persians, while still building a fortified camp, would just pitch their tents haphazardly, which made them vulnerable to surprise attack especially at night. Sassanid cavalry were superb, but their infantry were not considered a match for the Romans. Historically, this claim is accurate and understandable, given that on every other frontier, the Persians would only have to fight nomadic cavalry, whether it be the steppe nomads across the Oxus River, the Bedouin Arabs to the west, or the mountain nomads of Afghanistan and Baluchistan. A disciplined professional infantry was never as high a priority. So there you go. A very brief survey of the geopolitics of the empire around 600 AD. A few questions answered. A few provinces examined again. Next week, it's all questions all the time as I run through a good chunk of your 6th century queries as best I can. I'd like to remind you that the music for this podcast comes from musicalley.com. And if you have time to give the show a review on iTunes, it really will help the podcast be around for years to come. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 